you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. The text is also in the bulletin. And there are some Bibles available in the back if you need one. Uh, somehow this week I ran across this old headline for the joke news site, The Onion. Probably was one of your Facebook feeds that it popped up. It was from several years ago. And the headline is this. New sympathetic alarm clock just lets you sleep. New sympathetic alarm clock just lets you sleep. It's a terrible feeling when you're suddenly jolted out of a nice, comfortable, deep sleep by that deliberately unsettling screech of the alarm clock, right? Uh, An alarm clock exists because we know we need that to happen so that we can wake up and get to the... uh, business of our day so that we won't miss important appointments and so forth, right? We need to be awake so we know we need things like alarm clocks. And an alarm clock has to disturb you for it to work. It has to make you uncomfortable. It has to emit a slumber-piercing sound for it to, to do what it's supposed to do, right? And maybe we're reluctant Uh, to use them or resentful about it when we hear that noise, that screeching. But in our best moments, when we're most awake, when we're aware, we know that we need it. We know that it's good for us. So it it is funny to think of an alarm clock being sympathetic, looking to allow us to remain in our comfortable sleep, because that runs contrary to its very nature and its purpose and its function. Uh, In our passage this morning, Jesus sounds the alarm. He speaks in deliberately unsettling ways in order to disturb and rouse those who are in a spiritual coma. Jesus knows that if we're asleep and we actually need to wake up, then it would not be good for him just to be sympathetic and just let us sleep. Right? But it can be difficult to hear if you were expecting Jesus only to be sweet and syrupy all the time. This is slumber-piercing stuff. So uh, let's pray for God's help as we hear Jesus sounding his alarm that we wouldn't be perpetually grumpy about having to wake up. Uh, let's pray, and we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, in our best moments, our most spiritually awake moments... Moments which are a gift from you. Um, We can see the great value in those piercing words, the difficult words, the words that are meant to wake us up. Uh, Sometimes when we're spiritually asleep and would prefer to be undisturbed, these words can be very hard for us indeed. Uh, We pray that you would let these words be what they are, but that by the power of your spirit, you'd help us to receive them, to be made alert by them for our good. We know it is for our good that Jesus says words like this, so let us receive it as our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And to the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete 
in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when Jesus says at the beginning there, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. He's speaking directly to the pastor in Sardis about the pastor's problem. It's, uh, it's a second person singular language that you, um, that Jesus is talking to. But it does seem that the pastor's problem is not just his problem, but it's affected the majority of the congregation so that Jesus says later in the, in the passage, there are, there are a few names in Sardis, only a few. There are a few names in Sardis who are faithful. So this is how it usually works. The leadership of a church influences the church in a lot of ways, a lot of good ways a lot of times, uh, but also influences the church in such a way that the blind spots of the leadership are, generally speaking, going to also be the blind spots of the majority of the, the congregation. The problems that the, the pastor has or the elders will be problems shared by a lot of people in the church, spiritual problems. <clears throat> so Jesus here, he calls the pastor, as he's done in every one of these letters so far, and uh, we'll, we'll do throughout these letters, he calls the pastor to lead in repentance, not to be a perfect person, but to lead in repentance, right? To address his own blind spots and therefore the blind spots of the church, to tackle their shared problems and help others to, to do the same, right? To lead in repentance. So what is the problem in Sardis with the pastor and with the congregation there, the, the pastor, the messenger of the church, the, the elders maybe uh, need to lead in repentance about? What's the problem? The main problem uh, didn't seem to be persecution from the Jews or from the Romans, which is a big problem in, in a lot of these other letters. Uh, the main problem didn't seem to be false teachers leading the church astray. Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead, which indicates that something appears to be good, but that Jesus knows the reality to be exactly the opposite. It's not good. It appears good, but it's not good. So there's some sort of hypocrisy. Right? The external appearance is good, but inwardly it's not. He's talking about some kind of a hypocrisy, some false appearance of spiritual life. And Jesus laments hypocrisy with the strongest language. You find it throughout the scriptures, God uh, condemning hypocrisy. Jesus laments it in uh, Matthew 23 when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus uses pretty strong language to talk about hypocrisy, like he does here in our passage. It isn't made explicit what the hypocrisy was in Sardis that they were struggling with, though we can make some educated guesses and extrapolate, actually, from the rest of what Jesus talks about in this letter and how he talks about it. Jesus mentions the word hypocrisy Names. He uses that word um, four times in this passage. The word names appears four times. One of them, it's not translated that way for us, but uh, there at the beginning, in verse 1, it says, you have the reputation of being alive. It's you have the name of being alive, but you're dead. And then in verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis who are faithful. It's a strange way to talk about people as names. But he does that. And verse 5, twice, he says, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So this last bit especially uh, strongly evokes the memory of Jesus' teachings in the gospel. Maybe this language is familiar to you. We heard it in our Old Testament, uh, sorry, in our gospel reading this morning. Uh, But in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And in the parallel passage, which was our gospel reading, uh, he says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, before the Father, before his angels. But he goes on and says that the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So I think that's sort of a, the background for this promise uh, that's taking place in our passage in Revelation 3 when this particular reward is promised. When Jesus says he will confess before his Father and before his angels the name of the one who conquers, I think it makes good sense, and a lot of commentators think this, that that to conquer here means faithfully confessing the name of Jesus before men, publicly acknowledging him before, before other people. So it sounds like the pastor and the congregation in Sardis had become maybe known for being a, uh, a good, healthy, vibrant church. I mean, there's a lot of things that could externally appear good and healthy and alive about them, but that really they were hollow on the inside because they hadn't been truly interested enough in Jesus to faithfully bear witness to his name and to the gospel. To bear witness about him before other people. To publicly confess Christ. Um, maybe they hadn't been willing to be closely identified with Jesus. Or they hadn't wanted, at least for that association with Jesus, to define their reputation with people who are outside the church. They didn't want to be known as Jesus people. Maybe they just wanted to be known as good people. Maybe they thought it was safer and more comfortable to just keep quiet about Jesus. Keep Jesus to themselves. And, and thereby ignore the mission on which Jesus explicitly sends his church. You can't keep quiet about him. You've got to tell others about him. <clears throat> Maybe they thought they were doing well in Sardis because, you know, everybody seems to like them well enough. And they weren't taking too much grief for being Christians. So, so several commentators guessed that uh, they had mastered inoffensive Christianity. 
inoffensive Christianity. They were too innocuous to be worth persecuting. So the reason for their good reputation was that they they actually weren't being faithful. They might have a good reputation, but they have that reputation because actually they're not being faithful. They weren't proclaiming the gospel like Jesus commanded. They weren't publicly acknowledging Jesus and claiming association with Jesus. So they had this false sense of security. Everybody thinks well of us. Things are going well. We're not experiencing direct persecution. Things are going well. They had a false sense of security that Jesus wanted to jolt them out of. The people in Sardis, they knew something about a false sense of security. Uh, Sardis was a fortress city. It was built at the, the foot of a mountain on like a spur from this mountain um, so that three sides of the city, I mean, it's a walled city on top of a little hill, and three sides are like cliff faces, uh, fairly well unscalable cliff faces on three sides of the city. So they didn't even post a watch on the walls on those sides of the city because they figured nobody can climb the cliffs. We're not in danger on those fronts. And it happened twice in their history that attacking armies sent small groups of soldiers climbing those cliffs that everybody thought was unscalable, probably climbed them at night, and Sardis was caught off guard and the city was taken. Jesus wants his people to have a true sense of security in him. A true sense. Which means he needs to blow apart the false sense of security that we can slip into as easily as falling asleep. That we just be lulled into. In spite of the reputation of the church in Sardis, Jesus knew the reality of the situation and it was dire. And they needed to know it before it was too late for them. They needed to wake up, he says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So it's pretty bleak. At the moment, they should not feel secure about their relationship with him. They should not feel secure about their relationship with Jesus at this moment. Jesus says, I have not found your works complete. Because... They were not living like Christians live, like those live who are in a true relationship with him. A real relationship with Jesus makes changes in your life. It does. It doesn't make you perfect. But it makes changes in your life. Your life continues to change if you're in a real relationship with Jesus. He knows, he knows you'll never be perfect in his life. He isn't talking about imperfection. He's not saying, I haven't found your works perfect You're missing something here or there just a little bit. He knows you'll never be perfect. He's saying that if you trust him, if you're alive to him, and if if his spirit lives in you, then there will be some evidence. There will be a change. If you're interested in Jesus, you'll follow him in order to be with him. And you'll at least want to begin doing what he's told you to do. When you hear his words, and you realize... Maybe I haven't done that. It hasn't characterized my life. You, you want to do that. You want your life to change. You'll ask him to help. 
your life to change because you're interested in him and being with him and doing what he says. But if you've got no true interest in Jesus, if you're just pretending, then he knows it. And he knows that you're not going to enjoy actually meeting him. Hypocrites usually don't like it when Jesus comes around because he knows just a little too much about us for it to be comfortable. So right now, Jesus is raising the alarm in order to disturb sleepers out of their slumber. And he's doing it for their good. He's doing it for our good because he knows it is better for us to be awake. He's giving plenty of advance warning because he wants people to be ready for his coming. He doesn't... He doesn't want it to be like, oh no, we're, we're being uh, attacked when he comes. We're being threatened by his coming, like a thief in the night. He wants people to anticipate his coming and to rejoice in it. Not that we know exactly when he's going to come. If you, if you really love him and are interested in him and pay attention to him, then, uh, then his coming won't be a surprise to you at all. Um, no, you, you won't know, but you'll be ready. You'll anticipate it. You'll have a longing for it. And it'll be a a pleasant surprise when he comes, right? And he wants it to be like that for you. He wants us to celebrate our association with him. Not to be ashamed of it or embarrassed by it. He wants our relationship with him to be so important to us and so life-giving to us that we would cheerfully confess his name before others. And he uses strong language to get our attention and to alert us to how serious this is and the stark reality of it, uh, as Leslie Newbegin puts it. I think this is a quote on the front cover of the bulletin. He says, there's no participation in Christ without participation in his mission to the world. Jesus was always saying, the Father has sent me. I've come because the Father has sent me, and now I'm sending you. And for you to participate in my life looks like you doing what I've been doing. And that means going and proclaiming the gospel and bearing witness to God, to the kingdom of God. So Newbegin says there's no participation in Christ without doing that, without participation in his mission to the world. But Jesus, he, he makes that point, but he doesn't use guilt or shame or fear to motivate us to change, to make us better evangelists who will faithfully bear witness to him. He says in verse 3, remember Remember then what you've received and heard, keep it and repent. So the pastor in Sardis, he's talking to directly, and the church in Sardis there, and we ourselves, and all Christians, in all churches, at all times and in all places, we have received the most precious and wonderful gifts imaginable. They really are unimaginable. We've received a full pardon from the king of the universe. We've received... God's own name placed upon us, his own family name placed upon us in our baptism. We've received a royal welcome in the heavenly courts. We've received a place at God's own banqueting table, all because we've received God's own son freely given to us for our salvation. And we've received God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Remember what you've received. And remember what you've heard. You've heard the gospel. That even though we've rejected him in our sins, even though we're bad people, we're not the good people, we're the bad people, 
God was not ashamed to be associated with us in the closest and most intimate ways. He was not ashamed to be associated with us. God the Son became one of us to unite himself to us so that it would be possible for our bad reputation to reflect poorly on him. He went to parties with bad people, and the hypocrites criticized him for associating himself with sinners, with bad people. The hypocrites had him nailed to the cross as if he were a sinner. Jesus suffered and died because he embraced sinners, and he allowed himself to be associated with us, with bad people. And he took our reputation on himself. That's what our salvation is. Our association with Jesus. And repentant sinners love Jesus for that. Repentant sinners revel in his association with us. And hypocrites despise it. You have received and heard the most marvelous things that, <clears throat> that revolve around Jesus willingly associating himself with you. Even though it cost him everything to do that. Even though it cost him his life to associate himself with you. And someone who has received and heard this, someone who remembers this and keeps this and guards this and repents, will not be ashamed to admit his relationship to Jesus. Won't need to be guilt-tripped into acknowledging Jesus before men. Repentant sinners who really know Jesus, really know the gospel of his willingly associating himself with us will delight to confess the, the name of Jesus. Will thrill to the idea of participating in Christ's own life, which means also participating in Christ's own mission. It will pray for the Spirit to fill us and to embolden us more and more to bear witness to Jesus, to the gospel, to his kingdom. For repentant sinners... Our relationship with Jesus is more important to us than a pain-free life or a good reputation or how other people think of us or what they can do to us. Our relationship with Jesus is more important than those things. Our relationship is so important that if, if we actually suffer because of our association with him, you find this in the scriptures, you find this in the suffering church, around the world and throughout history, if we actually suffer because of our association with Jesus, it'll be the cause for rejoicing because of the association with Jesus. Because of that close association. And this is what Jesus wants to awaken you to. He wants you to come alive to him, to be in such a real, vital, spiritual relationship with him, that your greatest joy is in being associated with him. Whatever he says that means. <clears throat> Imagine when Jesus comes, hearing him read your name out of the book of life, the heavenly register. Imagine hearing the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth, say, well done, faithful one. Enter into my joy now. Imagine hearing Jesus confess your name before the Father and all the angels, saying, 
my relationship with this one is real. I'll happily claim that association both now and in the life to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's remarkable. It's astounding. Uh, It's baffling that you would want to be associated with people like us, that you'd give us the privilege of that association, that you would tie our reputation to Jesus and his reputation to ours in such a way that um, everything that's bad about our reputation, everything deserving of dishonor has fallen upon Jesus at the cross, and everything good and beautiful and wonderful about Jesus, his reputation in your sight, becomes true of us as we entrust ourselves to him and are spiritually united to him. This is the closest association, and it's a free gift of your grace. We definitely don't deserve it. But we pray that you would make us thrilled to receive it and to live in it. We pray that you would make our association with Jesus the most important thing in the world to us, that you would make it so important to us that we'd be willing to suffer whatever may come in this world because of our association with Jesus and to rejoice all the more because, because it is because of our association with Jesus. We pray that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, and help us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.